Daniel chapter 3, let's just start with verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, you know, government and their titles. He invites them to come, specifically, we're told, to the dedication of this image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Though it's impossible to say with 100% certainty, most scholars believe approximately 15 or so years have transpired between the close of chapter 2 and the opening of chapter 3. Historically, what happens in this time frame, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways establishes a greater context for the event recorded in our text. Since Nebuchadnezzar's ascent to the throne in 605 B.C., over the following decade and a half, his time was spent consolidating power, which included putting down several different rebellions throughout the empire. By the opening of Daniel 3, Jerusalem and the temple likely lay in ruins. Egypt has been finally willed into submission, and a coup attempt has been foiled in Babylon itself. Though his authority had been tested, King Nebuchadnezzar emerged stronger than ever. With his enemies conquered, peace finally achieved, his attention now focuses on building up and fortifying the capital city. Our chapter opens with the king making an image of gold to be displayed in the plain of Dura, which was a province of Babylon. Specifically, we're told that the height of this image was 60 cubits and the width 6 cubits. Since a Babylonian cubit equates to 20.3 inches, we understand that this image is roughly 100 feet tall and, and, and 10 foot wide. Furthermore, when you consider that the entire towering structure was completely overlaid with gold, this was quite a structure to behold. It was awesome. One of the great misconceptions of this story is that King Nebuchadnezzar created an image of himself in defiance of the image of God that God had revealed to him in the dream that was recorded in chapter 2. The idea, the theory here, is that since Nebuchadnezzar, going back to the dream, was the head of gold, that he was, in setting up this structure, this image, defying God's revelation by seeking to render a new version of what his future would look like. In effect, that Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to establish a kingdom on earth that he determined would last forever, while God said it wouldn't. Now, though I wish this were the case, because, well, frankly, that idea will preach, the problem with that theory is really threefold. First, if you accept a 15-year gap between chapters, the timing here really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. A lot's happened between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Secondly, the text itself, it never provides a description of the image, leaving us only to speculation. Finally, the typical human body has a height-to-width ratio of 5 to 1. Since the ratio of this image is 10 to 1, 
it's highly improbable that it was of a human being. If it were, it was a very grotesque-looking structure. A great example of this is the Washington Monument. It's 555 feet tall, and it's 55 feet wide. Again, a 10 to 1 ratio. What we can say for sure, though, about this image of gold, from the very context that will be established later in the chapter, is that it was set up, it was established, built by King Nebuchadnezzar, specifically to commemorate one of likely the many Babylonian deities, probably Marduk, or his son Nebo, of which Nebuchadnezzar was a namesake. Once completed, old King Neb, he sends a notice throughout the empire, commanding all of the officials of the provinces to come, to gather in the plain for the dedication of this image. One historian believes, speculates, that the crowd that would have amassed for the ceremony would have numbered anywhere between 200 to 300,000 people. Verse 3, so the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of musics, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Once the masses had gathered around this image, it doesn't take long for everyone to realize this was much more than just a, a dedication ceremony. No, no, no. King Nebuchadnezzar intended to use this great image of gold as a test of loyalty to the gods who governed Babylon. Considering the events of the last decade or so, you can understand his underlying motivation for such a test of loyalty. The herald's proclamation of what was really nothing more than King Nebuchadnezzar's edict is about as straightforward as you can get. I mean, there is zero ambiguity to this. When the people heard the sound of all of this music playing in symphony, Everyone was required to fall down or, or literally to prostrate oneself in order to worship or to pay homage to the gold image. In fact, this ancient Aramaic phrase, fall down, can be translated as get low, get low, get low, get low. You see, to the window, to the wall. Anyone who failed to bow down and worship would be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. In these ancient pagan religious practices, it was customary that a fiery furnace would be included in a place of worship in order to consume required sacrifices. Our passage never provides for us a description of what this furnace looked like. But we do know a lot. We know first the temperature of the furnace was controlled. It was prone to severe backdrafts at the entry. 
You could see into it and walk out of it. Spoiler alert. Though we can reason, Nebuchadnezzar cooked up this scheme to be a test of allegiance. Refusal to bow down would be a sign of treachery and disloyalty. The implications of this word worship, which will be used 11 times in the chapter, implied a, a deeper motivation. This Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, was seeking to solidify power by establishing a universal religious system. In many ways, this scene, as you play it out in your mind, as you try to imagine it, it was like one large counterfeit crusade. You had this massive, this massive stage. You had a worship band. Rocking out, stirring the masses with music. You had a herald, a preacher, delivering a message and providing an invitation. You even have present a counterfeit hell as judgment for those who dare refuse. What's interesting about this religious system is that Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. He was polytheistic. Nebuchadnezzar, as with all the Babylonians and most of the ancient cultures of the day, he believed in a multitude of various gods. In fact, the edict doesn't prohibit, and don't miss this, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't prohibit anyone from worshiping their own gods. All he's requesting of the people was to worship this image as well. You see, this idea is what makes this counterfeit religion of Babylon, which is still very much in existence, so slick. By and large, few believers, few Christians, have been martyred because they worship Jesus. It's a misconception. Instead, Christians throughout the centuries have been put to death because they refuse to worship anyone other than Jesus. The spirit of Babylon Babylon's appeal. It's a subtle compromise for you to add to Jesus other things to worship. Also take note at how different this religious system of Babylon is to the kingdom of God. What really sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions is that at its core, Christianity, Christ, he presents what? A loving invitation for the unbeliever to respond, to accept, to convert. But in contrast, Babylon <laughs> demands you capitulate or accept the consequences. Convert or die. Verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the, in sympathy with all kinds of music. All the people, nations, and languages that had gathered here around this golden image, they fell down and they worshipped the image of gold which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, they come forward, and we read that they accused the Jews. They spoke and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. That everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and sympathy with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. So they remind Nebuchadnezzar of what the edict was. 
They also add that whoever does not fall down according to your own edict and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews, Nebuchadnezzar, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Of all of the multitudes, again, 200 to 300,000 people gathered around this image for the dedication ceremony. Of all of them, only three recorded refused to bow down and worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or as they were first introduced to us with their Hebrew names back in Daniel 1, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When the worship band finally cranked it up to 11, and everyone bowed down before this image of gold, only Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were left standing. These men, they didn't budge. And when word finally reaches back to the king that certain Jews refuse to bow down to his idol, the king is furious. Now, the accusation these Chaldeans levied at these men before Nebuchadnezzar were fairly simple enough. One, they say they have not paid due regard to you. Like basically, their actions, well, they demonstrate a measure of disrespect to the king. Two, they do not serve your gods. This is a broad accusation, even beyond the moment. They're saying that these men, they've rejected Babylonian deities. They've rejected, resisted the king's religious system. And thirdly, they do not worship the image which you have set up. Basically, these men, they've disrespected you, they've rejected you, and now they're engaged in civil disobedience. They're disobeying your implicit commands. Now, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, I should point out that these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had already, already drawn a line in the sand upon their arrival to Babylon, along with their friend Daniel, these men had determined that they would dutifully serve King Nebuchadnezzar as long as to do so didn't go against their moral principles. There is no question. This entire proposition had placed these three men into a difficult position. What the king was requiring of them was something they could simply not do. They understood, rightly so, that a stand was necessary. Even if that stand meant being thrown into a fiery furnace. As followers of Jesus, you and I have been called by God to be good citizens and obey the laws of the land. <laughs> even if those laws are stupid, until our obedience to those laws no longer allow us to be good Christians. And here's how you know when it's time to engage in civil disobedience. There's a good tell for it. When that decision results in a fiery furnace. And yet, while these type of moments where you have to take a stand are unavoidable for those living in Babylon. 
One of the things I find so compelling about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about what they do here, is that while they indeed take a stand by refusing to worship the idol, do you notice they do so without making a scene? These men didn't protest. They didn't raise a fuss. Babylon will be Babylon. They didn't picket the dedication or seek to crowdsource a following on Facebook in opposition of the king's obvious overreach. Amazingly, knowing there would likely be consequences for their actions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all they do is they quietly choose not to participate. Let me apply this in a very relevant way to what we're facing presently. What grieves me about certain churches and their decision of late to defy the orders of the state by reopening their doors. Is it that they're reopening their doors or taking a stand? Is that they're making it into a public spectacle? You know, there's a big difference between a person who decides to stand on their convictions and the person seeking to defy an order of the state. One would like to avoid conflict. The other is intentionally trying to pick a fight. One oozes meekness, while the other reeks of self-rightness. <laughs> I'm not picking on anyone in particular. Every pastor has been placed into a difficult spot when it comes to the decision to reopen. For some states more liberal areas, I completely understand. I realize that a stand needs to be made. The necessary separation that has protected the church from the state for 250 years has been completely disregarded over the last month and a half. This shutdown no longer seems to be only about public health, but power. It is likely that it is an appropriate time to take a stand. And why do I know that? Because a fiery trial has been promised to those who disobey. That said, and what I'm about to say will be very controversial, if Jesus told you to reopen the doors of your church, that's good. But I can promise you, He didn't ask you to be an ass in the process. Like, emphasize standing on conscience instead of defying orders. Quietly reopen Sunday services without it being made into some gigantic protest. Remain meek, mild. Don't seek a confrontation. And then <laughs> go to jail if that ends up being the consequence. It's worth taking a moment to address the elephant in the room. Where's Daniel, right? Where's Daniel? Honestly, we have no idea because the text doesn't tell us. Now, I do think it's safe to assume that Daniel would have stood right there alongside of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and their refusal to worship this idol. His absence should probably be viewed as just that. He's absent. 
At the end of chapter 2, we read that in response to his interpretation of the king's dream, Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all of the wise men. While Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were also promoted and were told placed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, we read, but Daniel, this is how chapter 2 closes, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. The language here is really interesting. Because of Daniel's high position in the king's court, sitting in the gate, implying that he had become a very unique and special advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, the idea here is that, in all likelihood, he was probably out of town on an official diplomatic mission or some type of official business on behalf of the king, which is why he's not in our text. Or maybe his attendance in the ceremony just wasn't necessary. Either way, I will say that the stand his three friends take in his absence is really a testimony of Daniel's godly influence in their lives. It's been said, the test of leadership is what the followers do when the leader is gone. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now, accusations have been made against these men. Subsequently, they're brought before the king to give an account. Though Nebuchadnezzar is worked up by the situation, these men come in, and what does he ask? He asks them, is this true? Is it true? I love the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't take hearsay at face value. He knows there's other things at play, that the Chaldeans don't like the Jews anyway, that they're jealous of their, their position and notoriety. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take their word for it. He knows that the stakes are high. So instead, he brings these men in and he checks for himself. And in many ways, in doing so, he's providing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a way out of their present predicament. Like, like at this moment, these three amigos... They have another choice in front of them. You know, taking a stand by refusing to bow to this idol was one thing. When there was maybe a possibility, no one would notice. There's a lot of people here. But now that you're standing in front of the king, the king himself, it's clear that there, that there will be no wiggle room. Nebuchadnezzar continues, verse 15. Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of all of this music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Oh, King Neb is not messing around. He's issued an edict. In fact, the edict stipulated that these men should have already been thrown into the furnace for their disobedience. Nebuchadnezzar, as the king of Babylon, his, his commands were absolute, authoritative. 
And yet, you can imagine that King Nebuchadnezzar, he likes these guys. He knows that they're friends of Daniel, who he has the utmost respect for. So he gives them a mulligan. Listen, I like you guys. I'm willing to show a little leniency. You've been trusted servants. We'll, we'll just kind of, you know what, we'll chalk all of this up to just some misunderstanding. So when you hear the music, again, get low, we'll be good. <laughs> then this pompous king, he makes this statement. He says, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Your God, he's got no ability to save you. That question, it's about to be answered in a really incredible way. Verse 16, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. What bravery, tenacity, faith, conviction in the face of such a daunting set of prospects. These three men, they afford their minds zero opportunity for temptation or compromise. No sooner had the king made his offer that they collectively turned him down. King, thanks but no thanks. If this is the way that it is, <laughs> there's no need for us to wait around and listen for the music. We're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to worship the image. Go ahead and point us the, into the direction of the fiery furnace and let's get it over with. You know, it's one thing to claim to have principles. A lot of people claim to have principles. But you know, it's entirely another thing when you stand fast on those principles, even when it's potentially going to cost you everything. Like, it's just the truth. Fiery furnaces tend to be an effective way of revealing what a person really believes and holds true. Let, let's break down what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to the king, because it really is an astonishing section of Scripture. They begin, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Now, for starters, these men immediately go on the record as to why the entire situation was untenable, why this was not going to work out. They claim, we already have a God, a God we worship, a God we serve, meaning that there's no way we could ever bow down and serve this image of gold. Our God, notice that, our God. It denotes a relationship. You know, the very first commandment that God had given to the children of Israel spoke to this very matter. In Exodus 20, verses 2 through 5, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The resisting of Babylon, this polytheistic temptation, adding to your worship of God the worship of other things. He says, no, no, no. No other gods before me. Then he continues, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is on heaven above, the earth beneath, or that's under the water. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I wonder if this verse was 
rattling in their minds when they took their stand. Well, after bringing up the existence of their God, with, with no logical explanation for how this might even be possible, these men then claim that their God, the God they serve, the God they worship, their God was more than able to intervene, was more than able to deliver them from what was likely to be a terrible death, this burning, fiery furnace. And notice, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't presume or claim that God would deliver them. In fact, they're just clear to the king that if God so decided to act on their behalf, he was able to do so. And yet, they follow this up by then issuing a definitive statement. Look at it again. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. What God will deliver? There's no God that can deliver you out of my hand. And then they're like, well, our, our God is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. But the one thing we do know for sure, he'll deliver us from your hand. Like whether or not God would act to deliver them from the furnace, they were confident that whatever happened, God would deliver, would deliver them from the king's hand. It's as though they're saying, our God is in control, Nebuchadnezzar. If he wants to save us, he's able. If he chooses not to, that's okay. We'll die and be home in heaven. Either way, in the end, you, O king, have no power over our destiny. L lastly, they say, but if not, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They knew God was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. But they didn't know if God would. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't presume to know what God's will, what God's plan was for their life in this situation. In fact, they even acknowledged that God might very well end up acting in a way they didn't expect. It's amazing, really. Like, like in the end, if you boil it down, their faith was not placed in what God would do. They had no idea what God would do. Their faith was based in who God was. Not in what God would do, but in who God was. They knew God was able. And in effect, the king had no power to disrupt God's plan for their lives. Sure, <laughs> being delivered from a fiery furnace would have been preferable. They acknowledged that. But if God decided to act contrary to what they might have desired, they still trusted that God's will for their lives was always perfect. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, Underline these two phrases. He is able to deliver, but if not. Like that, that statement. He is able to deliver, but if not, it's the ultimate statement of faith and the goodness of a sovereign God. It, it declares that you don't serve or worship God because you want Him to do what you want Him to do. Instead, it acknowledges that you serve and you worship God because He's worthy and worth trusting with your life. If you really think about it, these guys had no problem standing on their conviction in the face of such consequences 
because really, they cared more about God's opinion of them than Nebuchadnezzar's. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego cared more about living their lives to please their heavenly God than they did about appeasing some earthly king. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar, as you can imagine, was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Which is odd because a furnace kind of by definition is going to do its thing. I don't know why you need to heat it up like seven more times as if that's really going to matter. And then he commanded mighty men of valor who was in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then we're told these men were bound and their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, their full get up, were cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the fire The furnace, exceedingly hot. The flame, we're told, of the fire actually kills those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Basically, when they opened up the door to the furnace, the backdraft was so severe as the oxygen hit the flames that the heat consumed these men of of valor. They They were killed on the spot. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three men, they fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And Imagine that moment, like how quick that happened, right? The, the door of the furnace opens up, this heat wave, these flames come shooting out. The guys around you who are, who are going to throw you in, they get consumed, like their flesh is melting off and they're screaming, and then you go falling in. You're immediately thinking you're dead, right? I mean, you would, logically. As you fall through the flames and you hit the ground in this this all the coals, you look up and you see your two friends. Like, I mean, in that moment, you got to be thinking, guys, we're in trouble. This is not heaven. (laughs) Clearly, we're dead, but this is not the place we thought we would be. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, like he's shocked by what he sees. He he rises in haste, and he spoke to his counselors. He says, did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? Guys, like there were only three of them, right? And they answered, they said to the king, that's true. He says, look, behold, take notice. I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Like what we have here is theologically what's called a Christophany. Like the Son of God. This was the Son of God. This was Jesus pre-incarnate. They're in this fiery furnace walking around with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What were they talking about? What was the look on their faces? What was the exchange? Now, we don't know this for sure, but rabbinical tradition says that they were worshiping. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to worship this idol of gold, but they worshiped God 
in the midst of the flames. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar, just not really sure how to process what he's seeing. He goes near the mouth of the, the burning furnace. Remember, this is hot. Anyone that got close was consumed. So he gets within shouting distance, and he speaks, no doubt. His tone's changed. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, the king's counselors who were gathered together when they saw these men, on whose bodies the fire had no power, when they saw the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. In fact, they note that there wasn't even the smell of fire on them. So verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, and he said, In the presence of everyone, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. <laughs> they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not worship any god except their own god. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, he says, these men, wow, these men, they trusted God to the point that they were willing to disobey my commands, knowing full well the consequences. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I make a decree. Now, keep in mind, no one asks him to do this. This is just a response of Nebuchadnezzar in the moment. He says, I make a decree that any people, any nation, any language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made in ash heap. Kind of Nebuchadnezzar's go-to punishment. Because, he reasons, there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You know, it's been said, the supreme irony of life is that hardly anyone ever gets out alive. Isn't that true? Life. Life is difficult. Its ill intentions towards its tenants possesses no limits. Life. It's in a fight against man. Henry Tilleman it was a heavyweight fighter. He once said, life is something that everyone should try at least once. <laughs> like if we're being honest, the difficult nature of life, how frustrating it is, difficult, trying, how life seems to, to fight against us, that reality, for, for some of us, it was one of the main reasons why we were drawn to Jesus in the first place. Like most of us, in the context of life chewing us up and spitting us out, we hope that there was something more to this. And we come to Jesus, believing His promise to provide life, and that more abundantly. And it's with that in mind that it should then come as no surprise that one of the biggest hurdles, one of the biggest struggles that people face after coming to Jesus is the reality that Jesus doesn't eliminate our problems like we were hoping he would. Like, in fact, not only does Jesus not eliminate our problems, 
sometimes we're left with greater ones, like fiery furnaces. I must say, and this is a point, please don't miss. The problem, the problem isn't Jesus failing to make good on his promises. Like, that's not the conclusion you should reach as a follower of Christ when life punches you in the nose. No, 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 no. Jesus isn't failing to do what he promised. Rather, you and I have a misconception as to what those promises actually are. Contrary to, to some of our notions and ideas, some of the preachers on TV Nowhere in Scripture will you ever read of Jesus granting his followers some type of immunity from the trials of life. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, Jesus promised his disciples the opposite. In one passage, he actually challenges them. He says, if the world nailed me to a tree, if they crucified me, What do you expect them to do to you? In James, we're told, count it all joy when you fall into trial. When, not if. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They find themselves facing a fiery trial. And they find themselves facing this trial. Why? Have they done anything wrong? No, quite the opposite. They were obeying God. They were doing the right thing. They had done nothing wrong. But God still allows them to be bound and thrown into a furnace anyway. Not exactly what you would call prosperity gospel. And yet, here's the grand lesson that's illustrated by this story. Life will present its own fair share of struggles. Jesus didn't promise immunity from trial, promised persecution. More often than not, God, and this is exemplified in this story, and man, you can go through example after example after example, all throughout the Bible. God delivers His people, yes, but He tends to deliver His people through the fiery trials of life, and not from the fiery trials of life. And God does this for a reason, friend. He does it because He knows that we come out the other side often better for it. Consider that apart from the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not have had this incredible experience. They wouldn't have had this moment where they, in the flames, encountered the person of Jesus. The miracle was in the fire. Here they are, thrown in the midst of a trial. They're uncertain of the outcome. And yet, the very moment they needed God to intervene, the very moment they needed His presence the most, Jesus is there, revealing Himself, comforting them in the fire, shielding them from the fire, carrying them safely through the fire. You know, often when we experience such a trial, we have this, this, this reaction. You've probably said it yourself. I know I have. 
in hindsight, looking back, you say something like this. Man, that situation, man, that was tough, that was difficult, that was trying, that was tribulation, but you know what? And that experience, man, it brought me closer to Jesus. Have you ever said something of that, of, of that nature? Now, I understand the sentiment. But in contrast to these three amigos, and within kind of the framework of our New Testament context, that statement, this situation brought me closer to Jesus, I want you to know that that statement is only partially true. Like, if you're a born-again believer, I want you to know, regardless how you feel in the moment, or the way things might seem, there are never times when Jesus is any closer than He's always been. You know that. You see, for you and I, trials, the stretching of life, these difficult things and circumstances, they don't necessarily bring Jesus closer as much as they help us become more aware of His presence already in our midst. Something we can so easily lose sight of. And I, and I hope you're encouraged by that. Like, even though life brings with it all kinds of obstacles, fiery trials, I hope you know God has not left you to face those things alone. No matter how dark your plight or hopeless your path, the Bible is crystal clear that Jesus will never leave you and will never forsake you. Friend, if your goal and following Jesus was to have a life of greater comfort and ease, you're going to be disappointed. In fact, the argument can be made that it's impossible with such an expectation to, to follow Jesus. For more often than not, following Him leads you into fiery trials. And yet, take heart. Not only will Jesus walk with you through the trials of life, but for these men, think about it. In a very stark way, this experience, as bad as it was, as daunting and challenging as it, as it appeared to be, being thrown alive into a burning, fiery furnace, you know, for these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this was the closest to hell they would ever be. One of the other interesting things about this fiery trial was the practical effect it had on their lives, aside from this, this incredible, renewed awareness of the presence of Jesus. There was a real practical thing that happens. Look back. Start, start with verse 20. I want to point out a few things. In verse 20, these mighty men of valor were directed to what? Buying them. Verse 21, we're told they were bound. Verse 23, they fell down bound into the midst of the furnace. Verse 24, the king asked, were these men not bound? But then in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I don't see men bound. I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. Babylon had thrown these men into the fire bound. But it was the fire that set them free. In fact, when they exit this burning, fiery furnace, 
their turbans and their, and their coats and their, their west, waistbands, like their entire attire, their hair. Nothing had been affected, nothing singed, nothing scor- scorched, nothing burnt. There wasn't even a smell on these men that they had ever been in the fire. The only thing that these men took into the furnace with them but didn't come out were the ropes. Their ropes were consumed. Christian, I hope you know that his gold is purified. How? In the fire. Fire heating up the metal so that the impurities rise to the top. Scraped away. As gold is purified, so you and I, the Bible says we're refined. How? We become more like Jesus. How? We grow in godliness. How? Through fiery trials. You see, God, He doesn't promise immunity from trial, but He promises that He'll use these difficult situations to burn away the very things in our lives that bind us, that restrict our ability to walk with Jesus. Also notice the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego handled themselves through this whole story and handled themselves in the trial itself. Eventually, what results? The whole thing spoke volumes. It testified to the world around them. In fact, these guys are such an amazing witness for for the, the presence of God, the power of God, that even the king, who earlier dared ask, who is the God who will deliver you, now at the end concedes in verse 29, there is no other God who can deliver like this. You know, it's one thing to be an example for Jesus when life is going well. But it's an entirely different thing to be an example of Christ even when your life takes a hard turn for the worse. It's a simple fact that in those moments, the world around you pays more attention to how you, claiming to be a follower, a servant of God, how you handle bad times. Matter of fact, they pay more attention to how you handle trials, bad times, than how you handle good times. And here's the reason. The world, man, the world that lives in Babylon is desperately looking for an answer for how they can make it through their own fiery trials. Because life gets us all. You know, in times like the one we're presently in, this global pandemic, Maybe the health issues behind us, but the economic issues staring us in the face. In tough, trying times, where you get fired from work, where your pay is slashed, where your small business closes, your 401k is wiped clean. In trying times, the world around you, people associated with you, you know, they're going to look at you because, because they're curious. If Jesus, the Jesus you claim to follow, the Jesus you claim to serve, the Jesus you claim is sovereign, the Jesus you claim is loving, the Jesus you claim to have given all for, they want to know practically if he's of any use. (laughs) What is your life saying right now? 
Are you as freaked out as the rest of the world? Do you find yourself as anxious as the rest of the world? Friends, it's easy for our lives to be full of love, anchored by peace, exude joy when life is swell. But can those same descriptions, indicators, markers, characteristics be made of you and myself when we're forced to walk in a fiery furnace? In closing, (laughs) have you ever noticed that your prayer life tends to get way more passionate when you're facing a fiery furnace? And have you ever noticed what you pray you tend to pray something to the effect of god get me out of this mess god give me escape from this trial god i'm done god i want out i can't make it i can't do it i don't want to be in the fiery furnace anymore you know something to that effect and when facing a fiery set of circumstances it's only human to pray for a way out and yet The challenge illustrated in this story is that in praying such a thing, you might be asking from God that He get you out of the very thing you need the most. Like maybe it's better for you to be in the thing you're you're wanting out of. I know that's hard. I know that's difficult. Fiery furnaces, fiery trials, they're a part of life. But for the believer, for the Christian, they aren't without purpose, divine purpose. You see, trials can be used by God to reveal the presence of Jesus in your life in a profound way, a way you had never experienced before. God can use fiery trials to also strip away from you The things that have been binding you and slowing you down, restricting your walk with God. These trials God will allow so that you might shine more brightly. That you might be a better witness to the world around you. A world wanting answers. Our God. He is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But sometimes His deliverance is to lead us through the trial itself. So, Father, Lord, we...